Thank you for tuning in to the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is an online ministry striving to feed people the life-sustaining bread of God's Word. Bread of the Word exists for the reclamation of the Bible in the heart, mind, and walk of all the saints of God, for it is the Bible itself which is the ultimate standard by which people are to live and honor God. Thank you for tuning in. This is Bread of the Word. Welcome back to the Bread of the Word podcast, Reclaiming the Bible and Exalting Christ, one verse at a time. My name is Tyler, and we are going to be going through Psalm 51 today. We've been in Romans for a good while, so we will be... Uh, we actually finished Romans last week. If you missed it, I would encourage you to go back and check that out. We did all of chapter 16 in one go. And the next Sunday, we will be diving into the book of Ecclesiastes, talking about worldview and where... Um, our lives have meaning, so I'm really excited to be doing that, but without further ado, let us dive into Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my sins, and cleanse me from my sins. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me, against you and you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it, and you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. So Psalm 51 gives us a profound statement of the need for God's mercy. David is the author, and he is pouring out his heart over his sin, almost as if in mourning. He starts off with, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, 
blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly, and cleanse me from sin. And when we look at those first three lines, have mercy on me, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Um, we're talking about three Hebrew words. We're talking about the mercy of God, the love of God, and the compassion of God. In short, those three all are very, very close. They're almost the same thing. David roots his plea in the character of God. He has no other plea. But just who is the man who prays such things? The superscript, the, uh, the, the caption on Psalm 51 tells us that it was written by King David after he was rebuked by the prophet Nathan for his sin with Bathsheba. And you can read about that in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12. But simply put, um, David took another man's wife as his own, had a child with them, and he arranged for the death of the husband. And this was very hush-hush. It was He'd already covered his tracks and everything, and his prophet, well, one of the priests, um, Nathan, who's considered the last of the Old Testament judges, um, he privately rebukes David for this secret sin. He says, you have sinned against God. And David confesses the sin to Nathan. And Nathan affirms him that there's going to be consequences for this sin. And there is room for redemption. And by modern standards, and even the standards of his day, there ought not have been grace for such a heinous thing. When we read the account of David, we don't necessarily, if we met him, we wouldn't necessarily want to extend him grace. He ought not have been in a place to write such a song, credibly, because of his past. And some of us have a similar past. But his conduct with Bathsheba was not the issue. It eliminated something that was within David already, something already there. In verse 2, he begs God to blot out his sin. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And it's, um, when we consult the Hebrew, David's usage of the word sin is not a verb. We're not talking about an action. It's a noun. It is, he is referring not to the sin he committed in that present moment, but a state of being that is sinful. Um, it's the same word that we read in Genesis 4. Now Abraham, sorry, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and other fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. It's the same Hebrew word for sin here, that it is a state of being. It is a, it's, on, it's ontological. It's not a verb, it's something we are. 
And so, David was ontologically in need of mercy. He hadn't fallen from grace. He was never there. James Montgomery Boyce once said that the only reason we dare come to God and dare hope for a solution to our sin problem is his mercy. We have no reason to come to God as David did. Because we are sinful people. He continues in Psalm 50, 51, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David was in full recognition of his sinfulness. It is ever before him. Much like David, our sins are ever before us. Our conscience bears witness against us that we are lawbreakers by nature. And what's more, David states that he has sinned only against God. Bathsheba was wronged by David. That is, there is no denying that. But he sinned against the standards of God, not Bathsheba. He sinned against God by dishonoring Bathsheba, who was made in the image of God. So it all comes back to God. All, it all reciprocates back to David's relation with God. Unfortunately, Bathsheba was collateral damage in that skewed relation with God. Psalm 130 puts it this way, If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities... O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. There is forgiveness when we are sinful. If God was to keep a record of our sins, as he does, none of us would stand. None of us would come out better than David. We are all entirely consumed by sin where it counts. We don't all sin in the same way. And we could certainly be worse. But we are worse where it counts. In terms of our standing with God. Because the minimum standard is perfection. That's the minimum. Is to be perfect. As he is perfect. And so the rest of us are not. And God is justified in his words that that sin must be punished. David is sinful and therefore must be punished. God gave his people a rule and that minimum standard is perfection. But what does David say? I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David was sinful upon conception. His sin nature was present before birth. Matthew Henry puts it this way, that David had such a deep sense of his sin that he was continually speaking of it with sorrow and shame. His sin was committed against God, whose truth we deny by willful, willful sin. With him we deal deceitfully. And the truly penitent will ever trace back the streams of actual sin to the fountain of original depravity. He confesses his original corruption. And so herein lies our divine problem. We enter this world in need of mercy. 
we don't need mercy because we had an abortion, or we had an affair, or we lied, or we stole, or any of the other pet sins we like to focus on. We need mercy because we are sinful people. We need to be saved, not from what we do, but from what we are. And there is a remedy for that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, in entrusting to us a message of reconciliation. That God, is ma God makes his people new. He reconciles us to himself. Not counting our trespasses against us. And he goes on to say, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. In this verse lies our source of hope. When we sit condemned as David, God desires truth in our inward parts. That is, for the permeation of truth into the deepest, darkest chasms of our being. He remedies the ontological problem of sin. And he gives us a new nature. He puts something new in us that wasn't there before. As it says in Hosea, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew of Israel. He shall blossom like the lily, and he shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. St. Augustine of Hippo puts it this way, Oh, that I might rest in thee, that thou wouldst enter into my heart and inebriate it, that I may forget my ills and embrace thee, my soul good. Our sin condemns us, but there is a remedy that we can be redeemed. We can find this rest in God because of what God has done, not because of anything we've done. And David shows us how to find this rest in the same God by whom we have been condemned in our sins. David cries to be purged with hyssop, to be made clean. Specifically, to be made clean according to the Levitical practices of the priesthood. Exodus 12 describes this practice. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. So, a little bit of backstory. The Israelites are enslaved by Egypt. And Moses has gone to them several times asking to um, for their release, that they may go into the promised land and worship and serve God. And the Pharaoh has said no. 
and he has, God has sent plagues upon Egypt. And he sent nine so far. This is the final one. There is an angel of death that's coming who is going to go through, go by every door in, e in Egypt. And will, the firstborn shall die. But if there is um, lamb's blood on the doorpost in this particular fashion, he will pass over your house and you will be spared. So quite literally, what they did is they anointed their doorposts with the blood of a lamb and with hyssop. And they marked them as being part, in a part of God's covenant people. And the angel passed by. This is why, we ha why they call it Passover. But what the blood signifies is important. Because you, ha you always had these two together. Hebrews 9 sheds a little bit of light onto this relation and says, Therefore, not even the first covenant, that is the covenant with ancient Israel in the Old Testament, was inaugurated without blood. For when every covenant of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded over you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The Passover is one example, but blood and hyssop were often together as a symbolic part of spiritual cleansing. But we have a question. David calls for the hyssop, but where is the blood? And I think we, I believe, we find that answer in First in Second Samuel chapter twelve. David said to Nathan, "I have sinned against the Lord." And Nathan said to David, "The Lord also has put away your sin; you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die." Just as the son of David died for sins he had not committed, so would another son of David die for the sins of many others. Because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God the Son, comes down in human form. He lives a sinless life. He lives the perfect life that you and I could never live. And he dies an undeserved death as a criminal. And the weight of the sin that should have been on us, that punishment therefore, was placed on him. And he died the death that you and I should have died, that we could be made new, that we could be redeemed before God. And it is, this is being modeled through David. That David's son died for sins that he committed. And David is begging God for grace. And he finds it. In verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. In other words, let my mourning be turned to gladness. Let what is broken be made whole. May God bring goodness out of my own unworthiness. Psalm 3 tells us, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. And that's, that's a sign of submission there. 
when in ancient times here, when you would conquer an enemy, he would kneel down before you. And then you would lift his head to look up, look up at you. God is the lifter of our heads. That we are a conquered enemy if we come into the grace of God. The Bible says that we are enemies of God outside of Christ. We are foreigners and lawbreakers. But he brings us into his family. He conquers that enemy within us and he makes us his own. And it is for that reason that he is a shield about us and the lifter of our heads. The only rest we have is in God. The dichotomy is ironic, but we are redeemed by our judge. And what does he do for our sins? Verse 10, created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. The Hebrew word create is a word used to describe the work of God. It is not used any other way. David is made new by God and God alone. We are made new by God and God alone. Hebrews 6, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Christ is our high priest, it says, but after the order or the pattern of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is an obscure character in the Old Testament. And simply put, he is a priest who predates the Levites, who predates Israel the nation. Because he's something different. He's something older. He's something more, he's something higher than the Levitical priests. Because in the priesthood of Christ, is different from the Levitical priesthood in that same way. Christ is eternal. He predates that Levitical sacrifice system, and he redeems us in a way that only he can. For he goes further than just making atonement for sin, for covering sins. He gives us a new heart. He takes care of the problem. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant, it says in Hebrews 7. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Amen. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints the Son who has been made perfect forever. The way that Christ redeems us through the cross is unique. It is more effective, it is more powerful than 
the sacrifice system. The sacrifice system points us to what Christ was going to do and has done from our perspective. Romans 5 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12 says, For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. All that to say that Christ has succeeded where Adam failed, that Adam ultimately, the story of Adam points us to a better Adam coming, that Christ is the true and better Adam. He is the true and better Moses who led his people out of Egypt into a spiritual land of blessing. He leads us not to Mount Sinai, to a mountain that may be touched, but he leads us not to a symbol, but to the, the real mountain that we don't enter into a representation of the presence of God. We enter into the real presence of God when the saints gather for worship. And David cried out to this God who made himself known to us while we were yet sinners. And David cries out to him to be made new, inciting the priestly language of the time. But the mediation, the priestly work of Christ, taking on our sin as his own, and satisfying his own justice for it is more complete. We are made new and given a new heart and a new exceeding joy. And in verse 13, David says, "If When you do this, I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. David longs to direct others to the salvation that he has found. For this redemption is not just for David. David prays that his mourning and blood guilt will be turned to rejoicing in the tremendous mercy of God 
for God is our salvation. Psalm 113 says, Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heaven and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust, and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. But there's something important here in this this run-through that God is making plain to us. Here's the kicker. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The sacrifices, much like the priesthood, are not the focal point. They are a physical description of a spiritual reality. In literary terms, we call this typology, that they are types, that they are stand-ins that point to a bigger truth in the spiritual side of things. So there's a literal sense and a spiritual sense. Leviticus 4 describes the sacrifices that David is talking about. But the skin of the bull and all its flesh, with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull, he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burnt up. The altar where they offered sacrifices in Levitical time was not in the inside the camp. They didn't have a city yet. They had a camp. And the priest would take the, the sacrifice animals outside the camp. And he would do his priestly work. He would offer the sacrifice to God outside the camp. And in the same way that the animals were offered up outside the camp, so the Son of God was raised up on a cross outside the city of Jerusalem in atonement, final atonement, for our sins. Hebrews 13 says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Just as the animals were burned outside the camp as, a, as an offering for sin, so Jesus hung on the cross outside Jerusalem, which literally means the city of peace. The Prince of Peace hung outside the city of peace as an offering for sin. The sacrifices themselves in the Old Testament were not an ultimate end. They served a purpose to teach that sin had consequences and that sin requires death. As it says in Hebrews that there's no remission of sin except the shedding of blood. And it shows us that we are redeemed of our sins by that sin being transferred to another's account. So then, we're not made just by ourselves, but we are made just before God by God. Romans 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law 
might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Our high priest did what no other could do and died for our sins as the final sacrifice and was raised from the dead. And he ever lives as our high priest. Our mediator does not abdicate his position. He maintains it permanently for his work of atonement is finished. And it is through him that we come to God for grace. And the sacrifices of God, the psalm says, are a broken heart. We sacrifice to the sacrifice. We offer to God our hearts full of sin and wickedness and impurity. We offer that to God. And we seek God to make us stainless. And the whole of the psalm can be summed up in two words. God forgives. And God forgives us, not because of anything we've earned, but because of who he is. Have mercy on me, O God, according to thy steadfast love, according to thy abundant mercy. We are saved by God according to who he is. And in closing, ponder the words of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless, before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, before all time, now and forever. Amen. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Bread of the Word podcast. I pray that it has been beneficial to your walk with God and that he has called you into a deeper relationship and fellowship with himself. If you want to hear more from Bread of the Word, feel free to hit that subscribe button down at the bottom. Get notified about new content whenever we go live. Um, you can also watch us on Rumble Video and YouTube, or you can listen on your favorite podcast platforms. Um, you can also find us on social media. If you want to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Gab, links will be provided in the bio um, if you would like to check those out. And there will also be a message in the comment section um, a free gospel message for download entitled The Two J's, The Joy of the Potter and the Journey of the Clay. That's something that I've written, that's something God laid on me to write and then send out. And so I'm not making anything off of it, I'm not selling it, it is free for you to read and share. We need a further saturation of the gospel in our world, in our culture, and it starts right here. Bread of the Word Ministries exists for the reclamation of the Bible and the exaltation of Christ through the reading and teaching of His holy transformative Word. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. God bless. Matthew 4.4 4.